We're starting a new series today. It's going to be a short series, take us through the month of December, and we are going to look at Christmas carols. And uh, every year we, we, we sing Christmas carols, but I don't know that we always stop and pay attention to the words, especially if you've been singing them your whole life. If you've kind of grown up singing these songs, then you just kind of go through the routine of singing them, right? You know the words. Probably a lot of you know the words by heart. If you're like me, you start listening to Christmas music in October, so you've listened to the songs for a long, long time, and you know them very well. But when was the last time you stopped, or I stopped, or we stopped, and looked at the message of them? So we're going to look at a couple of those uh, throughout the next couple of weeks, and I think you're going to be, uh, as I am, just amazed and astounded at the depth of uh, content and rich theology that is in a lot of these, just a, a great source to learn uh, about the story of Christ. So, this week we're talking about O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the song we just finished singing. Uh, typically, that would kind of be one of the songs, if you know about the season of Advent, a lot of churches do what is called Advent, which means to… Uh, to expect. It's kind of looking for something that's going to happen. You know, you're anticipating something that's coming down the road, and so that's what, that's what Advent means. And so a lot of churches will spend the month of December anticipating or expecting, looking forward towards Christmas, and they take each of the four weeks to either talk about some of the key components of the Christmas story, or they talk about some of the big themes like hope, joy, peace, and love throughout each week. And so last week was actually the first Sunday of Advent, but so if you were at a church that, that followed that really strictly, you probably would have sung this song last week. And so I thought it would be good for us to start off with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, to kind of set the stage for this series and for the month of December. Now, I want to give you some, some history. I'm going to walk through the song uh, and how a, a lot of scriptures are brought into the song and the lyrics of the song. We're going to walk through it. So the first, if you will, if you'll allow me to just kind of teach a little bit for the first part, and then we'll kind of pra- make it practical. How do we live in, uh, in light of the truth that we've learned here? But this stuff is always very interesting to me. I know I'm a musician. I love Christmas. I love Christmas carols, and so maybe I'm a little bit weird, but I think a lot of you might find this interesting too. So uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, if you don't know, we don't actually know who wrote this song. It was written in Latin. Uh, we're guessing sometime, the, our scholars are guessing sometime around 1100, but they don't know who actually wrote down the words for the very first time. But over the course of the next uh, four or five hundred years, it kind of started to become circulated among the church, especially the Catholic church. And then in 1700, what we have now, kind of what we have now, at least in the Latin, the metrical version of it was uh, put in the collection, the, I can't pronounce it because it's in Latin. Uh, it looks like an oleum. Psalteriolum cantionum catholicarum, catholicarum, something like that. But anyway, it's been translated from that Latin into the, the version we have now, and it's been done several times because as you, if you've ever tried to translate something, you know that it can be hard to translate something and maintain the meaning and at the same time maintain the meter and, and the poetry of it. So it takes some time to kind of get it right, and a lot of people kind of have to work at it over time to get it done. But the translation we have now is by a guy by the name of John Mason Neal. 
who uh, was a priest, and he just translated Latin uh, carols and Latin hymns in his spare time for fun. And so he was translating some of this, and this was one of the ones that he came across and translated, and then it became, in 1861, a part of the official hymnal for the Church of England. So think about that. Not only was this, this was written in 1100, but since 1861, it's been a part of the church in England. And so that is a long time compared to maybe a lot of the songs that we're used to singing now. But this guy also set the poem to music, and this was interesting because uh, it wasn't originally with the music. And if you know about hymnals, you know, typically a hymnal, if you pull one of those, have you, if you, has anyone ever been to a church with a hymnal? A lot of you probably haven't. <laughs> And, and a lot of churches, uh, you know, if you're sitting in the seat, well, right in front of you, uh, there would be a book. It's called a hymnal. It's about the size of a Bible. And in it, you have a bunch of hymns and spiritual songs and psalms that have been collected over the years. And you pull it, and normally what you would do in that kind of church is the, the song leader would get up, and he would tell you to turn to hymn number, you know, 175, and you would get that out, and you'd turn over to that and you'd kind of sing it, and you had this, uh, this traditional arrangement where you play through the last line of the song as the introduction for the song, always the same, and then you play through it, and then a lot of times in the fourth verse, you'd skip the third verse because no one ever wants to sing the, the third verse because it makes them feel bad and guilty, so we skipped over it, and we'd sing the fourth verse, and we'd do a key change on the fourth verse to take it up a step and kind of make you feel like the song was going somewhere. Well, that, that was kind of a hymnal, but in the hymnal… Uh, they would have the music, and it would have four parts in it, right? So if you knew how to read music, you could sing all four parts. So if you, if you were bass and you knew how to read bass, you could sing the bass line and tenor line and the alto line, and, and uh, the melody uh, was always in the soprano line, unless there was a descant that had been added into the hymnal, and then the sopranos would sing this ah, thing while someone else took over the melody. It was, uh, it was a very different time than what we're used to. Now, but, uh, so, but the hymnals back then didn't always have music to go along with the words. They were often, you know, kind of like the Gideon Bibles. They were pocket-sized hymnals, something that people could carry around with them through the week, and they could pull it out and look through the lyrics of the hymns, and that would be something that would kind of, kind of uh, bolster their faith throughout the course of the week. And so most of the hymns that were in there didn't have a melody written to go along with it. But this one, in, in about 1861, when Neil put this to this music, he put just the, the melody for the verse and the chorus in there with the first verse and the chorus, which we call Rejoice. It wasn't really called the chorus, then it was called the refrain. But he put it in, and as he, as he did that, then that became the melody that was associated with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the one that we sing today. Uh, the interesting part about that melody is they were finally able to trace the melody back to where it came from, and it came from the 15th century, and it was actually a processional funeral hymn. And so we're singing a funeral hymn uh, every time we're singing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And that was found in, the, in a manuscript in the National Library of Paris. So it's got, it's got a great, a great, great history. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of merit to it just in its history. But I want to take just a minute. We're going to walk through verse by verse and talk about it, and then we're going to talk about our response to it. The first verse, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. 
that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Emmanuel comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and you've probably heard this, but Isaiah is sharing a prophecy, and he says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And as Matthew records this same verse in his gospel in uh, uh, Matthew 1, verse 23, he shares and says that this name means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And if you read other places in Isaiah, you'll see, you'll come across the word Emmanuel, and, and you'll, get, you'll get the whole picture that, that Emmanuel, God with us, that He, Emmanuel, God with us, is coming to pay the ransom that only a God-man can pay. And so this idea that God is with us is a very important idea to our faith. It's something that we've got to understand, and it is the one key idea that I love the most about Christmas is because up until this point, um, God had been removed. And all of a sudden, at this point in time, when Jesus comes and He's born to Mary, now all of, all of creation that was, that was, that was created at, by the Son and the Word and, and all of these things that God had done now is a part of creation, and God Himself was walking and living and breathing among us. It's astounding. And I think it's what gives us hope. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But I want to keep covering this. There's a lot in this first verse. I'm sorry, this is going to feel like a lot, but I want to cover it because uh, it it sets us up well. Um, In Isaiah 35.10 and Jeremiah 31.11, we see examples of the hope that Israel had of being set free from their captivity but in fact, by the time Jesus was born, they had been set free. They were still, you know, they were still under, you know, Roman, in a Roman-occupied world, but, but they were no longer in exile like they had been. When Cyrus captured Babylon, there's a lot of history, but track with me, and 539, because this, this is going to help us understand what he's talking about a little bit more, 539, he, set the, he let the Israelites go. He said, you can go back to where you came from. Uh, we don't need you around here anymore. And between the years of 539 B.C. and 444 B.C., there were three kind of exoduses again back to Israel and Jerusalem. But the rebuilt Jerusalem, which Nehemiah, if you go read the book of Nehemiah, helped complete and rebuild the wall around this rebuilt Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem was much smaller than it had been before. So it's important that you understand this. We're not thinking about captive Israel, right? We're not thinking about the captivity that we talk about in Israel's history. I think a lot more what, what uh, the writer was getting at is the captivity that we all are under from sin. So even though Israel had been set free from captivity, they, were, they still weren't truly free when Christ was born because they were still trapped in bondage to sin and disobedience to God. And if you read through some of the prophets, you'll see a lot of the sins that they kept, com- they, they kept committing over and over and over again. One of the good examples that you can see in a couple different instances is not giving to God through the forms of tithes and offerings. And you can see that in Haggai chapter 1 and Malachi chapter 3. God is not happy with their disobedience. And then after this time, after, after Nehemiah and they had, they had finished this, this wall and they were back in Israel, something really astounding happened is that God went silent. 
and they experienced 400 years where God did not speak to them. Up until this time, He had been speaking to them in various forms, usually through the prophets, and the prophets would, would share His message with the people. And a lot of times it wasn't a pleasant message, but about 400 years before Christ came, God went silent, and there was no longer a voice to be heard. And you think about that, 400 years, 400 years not hearing from God, 400 years not knowing if God even exists. Think about the doubts that maybe are being passed down from generation to generation, how, how 400 years and how many generations that is that, that had now been removed from ever even hearing God speak through a prophet. So the desire was strong. Emmanuel, come. Come, Emmanuel. Be with us. God with us. The second verse, O come thou wisdom from on high and order all things far and nigh. I love this verse. To us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to go. Wisdom is a, is a big part of God's teaching, and in fact, if you wanted to, you could spend a lot of time studying the idea of wisdom in a great word study. If you went to BibleStudyTools.com and you just looked up the word wisdom, you would see how wisdom plays a huge part in all of God's story. Wisdom is a huge part of God's truth, and you can see in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 15, if you want to write that down, as well as Psalm 104, verse 24, that wisdom is what God used to establish the order of the world that we live in. So we've talked about this operating system idea. The operating system of the world was built on God's wisdom, and He was the source of it all. And so there's this longing to, to have Emmanuel, God with us, come and reorder all things according to the wisdom that He created the world with in the first place. Such rich content and rich ideas. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, we learn that Christ Himself is wisdom and knowledge. It says, in Christ are hidden all the secrets of wisdom and knowledge. That's Paul telling us that, that Christ is wisdom and knowledge, and as we'll learn, truth. This idea, the path of knowledge that we see, I'm just sharing this to kind of give you the breadth of, of teaching that is in this song. That word, that phrase, path of knowledge, probably is a reference to Isaiah 40, verse 14, where it says, uh, who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge. And this passage is asking a series of questions, rhetorical questions, to show the supremacy of God and that no one is an authority or rules over God. It is God who always instructs. The next verse carries with it some content you may be unfamiliar with. O come, thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory or, or over the grave. And that comes right out of uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, and we're going to talk about this for just a minute. I want to share it with you. But springing from a dead stump comes this rod of Jesse. 
There's this great visualization that, that this, the stump that had once been you know, the hope of the world through the, through the kingdom and the people of Israel is now a dead stump, but coming out of that stump is the rod of Jesse, and he will free his people from Satan's tyranny through his death and resurrection, making them free forever. Let's go look at that, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 4. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge. He will judge with righteousness. With righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And it's a stark contrast to how we would judge something, right? We would, we would use our eyes and ears, and we'd kind of make something, make a decision based on what we're observing, but that's not how Jesus Christ, who came, is judging. He's judging with righteousness, and He will judge the needy, uh, but with righteousness He will judge the needy, and with justice He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And we start to hear that Christ was coming for the oppressed. Christ was coming for those, those who would be the outcasts of society. It's also a great picture of how the church was going to become a part of the kingdom of God and how even though we are on the outside, we are not part of God's chosen people, only Israel is God's true chosen people, we get grafted into the branch. We get grafted into the vine even though we're outside the kingdom. We get to become a part of the kingdom and we get grafted in and we get the opportunity to bear fruit as a member and a part of the kingdom of God. O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Day spring, you actually have to go to the King James to see this, but in, in Luke chapter 178, they use the word day spring instead of sunrise, which is what a lot of our modern translations use. But uh, Luke 178 says, the day spring from on high hath visited us. And this is at the end of Zachariah, Zachariah's benedictus over the birth of his son John, who would become John the Baptist, and he was going to go and prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus Christ, and he was going to go and do ministry so that when Christ came, he could take over. Uh, Zachariah says that John will go before the Lord and prepare his ways and give, knowledge, give the knowledge of salvation to people by the forgiveness of their sins. And this will be possible because of the mercy who, of the one who was to come after him, the mercy of the one that God now has become one of us, and now this day spring, this sunrise, this new life, this new hope is being brought to order in the world that we now live, and this now new dawn is upon us. And because of this, because Christ is now this sunrise, he's, he's now this new light that is shining, he's now this new hope, now the, the clouds of darkness and night and death and sin and the grave and destruction are dispersed and they, they peel back. Someone just asked him, since God didn't speak for 400 years, did the, uh, did the false prophets uh, have free reign? 
Yes, essentially the false prophets had free reign. There was a lot of false prophecy that took place during those 400 years of silence, and a lot of people wanted to uh, say that they were the Messiah, and they were talking about, you know, they were trying to use this hope that someday God would start speaking again and use it to gain people to follow themselves, but they were not the true prophet. In fact, the only true prophet to come was Jesus Christ Himself. But this day spring, this new light, this new day is upon us because of what Jesus Christ did when He came to this earth, and now He's shining this new light that puts darkness and death to rest. O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. We didn't sing this verse today. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22 says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. The key of David. See, Jesus Christ was the key of David, and he rescues us from hell, and he locks the door behind us, right? He, he unlocks the door of heaven, and he can bring us home. And in fact, we see in Revelation chapter 3 that what he shuts, no one can open, and what he opens, no one can shut. Listen to this, Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 7b, the last part of verse 7 and the first part of verse 8. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. He holds the keys. We hear this phrase in other, in other hymns. He holds the keys of life, our Lord. Death has no victory. He is the final word. And so now Jesus Christ is the key opening that door, and he's opened it so that we get to come through and have an eternity with him. And what he opens, no one can shut. There is no one else that can shut the door that Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, has opened. And this last verse is one of my favorites because it tells us what we are supposed to be doing and experiencing as a part of Christ's redeemed community on earth. It says, O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. But envy, strife, and quarrels cease, fill all the world with heaven's peace. Desire of nations is a reference to Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. It says, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. The history of the world, if you look at it, is not one of peace, right? It's not one where, where all peoples come together, right? Quarrels have not yet ceased in this world. The, the, the striving for our own agendas and our own ideas has not ceased. It still carries on. But since Christ is the desire of all nations, He's the only one who can unite the hearts and minds of all mankind and cause all divisions to cease. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 refers to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. But this verse promotes him to the role not just of a prince, but to the very king of peace. And so I think when we look at that verse as a church, what we see is Jesus Christ has come, and Jesus Christ has left his spirit with us. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Now we become, as I say so many times, agents of that peace. We have a responsibility to go into the world of darkness, the world of destruction, the world of corruption, and do what we can to bring peace into the chaos, to bring order to the strife 
and do what we can to help people see that God has come and He wants to bring peace. There's a lot in there, and uh, I don't pretend that you're going to absorb all that, but you can go listen to this again on the podcast if you want to, uh, and it'll be available later this week so you can go kind of soak in a lot of this detail. But I want to ask a question to kind of turn the corner towards the end. I want to ask, what have we done with Emmanuel? What have we, the modern church, what have we, the followers of Jesus Christ in this era, in this day and age, in the right here and the right now, what have we done with Emmanuel? To do this, I want to take us to two scriptures in John chapter 14. We're jumping ahead in the storyline. We're not sticking strictly to the idea of Advent, but it's important for us to understand uh, this truth. So John chapter 14 we learn this. This is Jesus speaking to His disciples. He's teaching them just before He's about to be crucified, and He's sharing with them some final truth that is going to carry them over until He has resurrected. And He says this. He says, if you love Me, keep My commands. How do we know someone loves Christ? How do we know someone loves the Lord is because they're keeping His commands. And this is a verse we've talked about so many times, is that we have a responsibility to fulfill and keep the commands of Jesus Christ. And this is how we show by our lives that we actually love the Lord. But listen where he goes. He says, verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Listen to that. I will ask the Father, Jesus is speaking, and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. And this is critical, this next part. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. So this is before Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, and what he's saying, he's saying, you know him because he lives with you. So this is the Spirit of God. This is the Spirit of, of the, 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 the triune, the trinity of God, and this is the Spirit that's going to be with us. But he's saying, you know what he's like because it's me. It's, it's me. It's Christ. It's the Spirit of Christ. It's the Spirit of God himself. So you know who he is because he's been with you, and he will be in you. And this is where Emmanuel starts to, I think, really come to life in us as the modern church. John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus is still teaching, the same teaching. He says, very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. That doesn't make sense at first, right? So how could it be for our good that Jesus is going away? Wouldn't it be better if Jesus stayed on the earth and walked among us for the rest of eternity. Wouldn't it be better to have Jesus here with us? But he says, no, that's not the truth. It's for your good that I go away. Why? Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come. The Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. What have we done with Emmanuel? 
So I think we have this longing for God to be with us, and what we don't realize is God is with us if we believe in Him. The promise of Emmanuel, this promise that they had been hoping for so many years before Jesus came, that God would walk among His people. God would be with His people because Jesus Christ came, He lived His life, He died on the cross, He was resurrected, He ascended to heaven, and then He sent His Spirit. Now God is with all who believe. God is with us. God is with you. God is with all believers in Christ. We are all united by the Spirit. So now God is with us. What have we done with Emmanuel? What have we done with with the idea that God is walking with us and now we have the Spirit of truth residing in us? Do we live by that truth? Not not only do we we try to shine that truth, but do we live by the truth? Do, Do we let the Spirit of Christ come in and restore the truth that was corrupted by the world in us? Are we allowing God Himself to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, or are we still clinging and hoping that we can have the best of both worlds, that we can have the sin that this world put down before us and cling to the hope and the righteousness of God, and that someday it's just all going to work out and I'm going to be happy in the end? What have we done with Emmanuel? And I think this is a key question, not only for us as a church going into the Christmas season, but for us as a church going into the rest of our lives as followers of Christ. Because if His Word is true, if His promise is true, and we have the Spirit of truth residing in us, then in us is what the world needs to experience. The world cannot experience it on its own. The world cannot know the Spirit of truth. It's not possible. That's what we just read. The spirit of truth is in in stark contrast and direct conflict with the world. The world is operating under corruption and corrupted ways and broken and fallen ways because of sin that entered into the human race back in the garden. So the world cannot know truth. And when we see the world acting in a way that doesn't make sense, in ways that seem to continually contradict itself, which it always does, If you ever watch the world, you will see the world is full of contradictions. And when you see contradictions, what that should do is clue you in. That's the world. That's the brokenness and fallenness and corruption of the world. And the only answer to that corruption, to that that contradiction, is when the truth comes. And so what are we doing with Emmanuel? Are Are we using Emmanuel, God, with us to bring the truth into the corruption? Are we bringing the truth into the contradiction? Or are we allowing the contradiction to continue to take hold and and affect our lives. Because if we're not truly set free, if we haven't allowed this truth of God to set us free from that corruption, from that contradiction, we're still captives. We're just like Israel. We're captive to the old man. We're captive to the sin. We're captive to the curse that entered this world. And Jesus didn't come become a man, walk this earth, die on a cross, rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, and send His Spirit to be with us so that we could still be in bondage to the corruption. He came to set us free, and now we become agents of freedom, peace, hope, and light, and joy, and love to a world that stands in darkness, corruption, condemnation, and destruction. So my question for me, my question for you, my question for us this morning is what have we done with Emmanuel? 
for thousands of years, the people of God, God's chosen people, waited for that day when Christ would come, when Emmanuel would come and be with them. The prophecy of Isaiah was hundreds of years before Christ came. I think it was like 700 years before Christ came or so that Isaiah had this prophecy of Emmanuel, God with us. So from Isaiah alone, we see 700 years of waiting and anticipating and hoping that God would come and be with His people. And that prophecy was fulfilled. What have we done with that fulfillment? So I just want to ask you, I want to ask me, I want to ask us this morning, Are we living as though the spirit of truth has come and resides in us, that God himself resides in us, and are we living by that truth? This goes and and talks about the now and not yet that we spoke of last week. The whole hymn of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel actually speaks to that because there are aspects of the, the now, this has been fulfilled, and the not yet has to come, that there's still more to be fulfilled, there's still more promise to come, there's still more to see down the road, and that's what we see through the book of Revelation, that, that even though the door has been opened, it's, there's still more to come, there's still the future to be fulfilled when it comes to all of the prophecy of Jesus Christ. And so, even though in the now we have received redemption and are being transformed, there's the not yet of our total and ultimate redemption and transformation and permanent salvation. But that's the not yet. What about the now? Are we living in the here and now as though God Himself, God with us, the Spirit of truth is in us, guiding us? Listen to these words of Jesus again. I didn't put it on my notes. But in John, I think it's John chapter 16, he says that he will guide you into all truth. That when he, the Holy Spirit, comes and and fills us, when we receive Christ, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, every believer who puts their faith in Christ receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have the fulfillment of this promise in you when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And when He comes now, He guides us into all truth. Are we, are we allowing the Spirit to guide us into truth? Or are we trying to, to, to get the, the stamp of salvation without any kind of transformation? See, Jesus didn't just die on the cross so that we could be saved. He died so that we could live transformed, redeemed lives in the here and now. And through that redeemed life, He wants to shine His light out into the darkness if there's going to be any hope that the world is going to see through us as His followers, as His church, as His believers, as His instruments, then it's going to be because there's a contrast in who we are and the way we live with the way the world lives. Is there a contrast? Is there a contrast in my life? Is there a contrast in your life? Can the world see the difference because of Emmanuel? My hope and my prayer, my desire for us is that that we become a church that lives out God with us. That we know that Christ has come. We're, We're not waiting for something to happen. It has happened, and we've received this gift, and we're going to live as though Christ has come. We're going to live as though as though the Spirit 
of God now resides in us, and we are carrying as temples the Holy Spirit. We are the sanctuary. God resides in you. God resides in me. Are we living lives that honor that? And if you can, imagine with me what this would look like. Because the promise of Emmanuel, the hope of Emmanuel, is not just for me, it's not just for you, it is for those who don't yet believe. And the hope is that we live lives that shine the light of God's truth into the darkness. And as they see that light shining, they're drawn to the light and they want to know the truth. And they start to see the contrast between the truth and the lie, between redemption and corruption. And it's a picture, I mean, it's like you know, light going out, and I was thinking about this because I was hanging Christmas lights yesterday. By the way, I heard it was sunny down here. It was raining up at our house. But I was hanging Christmas lights in the rain and thinking about, you know, we bought the, like a 50-foot-long string of lights from Walmart. I don't know, I think it had 200 lights on it. But one of these little, the little LED lights, very on the Christmas lights, very ineffective when it comes to the amount of light they put out by themselves, right? I mean, if you take one of those lights off of the string, I don't even know how much light it puts out, but it's not very much. It's just very ineffective. But when you add the whole string of 200 lights together, it produces a lot of light. And we hung them on, on the front of the shop. If you've been out there, hung them on the front of the shop so that not only would we have lights on our house, but we'd have lights that we can look at because not a lot of people live up there. And so uh, we put lights on the shop, and you can actually see the shop in the dark. These little teeny tiny lights that don't seem to have a whole lot of lumens to them, when you put them all together, shine a lot of light and illuminate the darkness. And you may be thinking, I'm just, I'm just one person, I'm just one light, but what about the other believers who, who you work with at your workplace? What about those who are in your neighborhood who also believe? What about those in your family who also believe? You don't know my family. There's just no one else. Well, maybe there's one, and maybe if the two of you can get together, then, then you can shine your light. Maybe you can reach out to one, and together you can shine your light, and the two become three, and the three become six, and we start to share and shine the light, and what seemed like a very dimly shining light now becomes a string and a strand of light shining and illuminating the darkness. And that's the dream that I have for us at 6A Church is that as we shine our lights, not only do we shine our lights together and illuminate the darkness when we're gathered together here at 6A Church, but we go out and we look for ways and opportunities to connect with other believers and other Christians so that in that darkness, you know, we're all gathered together, the light's shining pretty brightly here, but what about when you're in the true darkness? Can you get together with other believers and shine the light? And what would happen to our world if we started going in and being agents of light and agents of hope and agents of peace and connecting with other believers, no matter if we agree on everything, we just go and we just said, you know what, you believe in Jesus Christ, that He died for your sins, that He rose from the grave, that He sent the Holy Spirit, and now Christ is in you. You can agree on those things, and most people, almost every Christian can believe and agree on those things. Let's shine the light. And let's start to have these strands of light that are illuminating the darkness. And until you have a strand, shine your light as best you can. Shine bright. 
And you know what? I think people will be drawn to the light. Even if you're the only one shining, people will be drawn to the light, and more will come to faith because you're shining your light. That's the dream I hope we see as a, as a church. And I think that's the truth and the hope of Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's stand together. But I want to pray for us this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for Christmas. I thank you for the hope of Emmanuel, God with us. I thank you that it's not just a hope that we long for that will someday happen, but that it's a reality that we know is already here. And that there are still, even though there are still aspects of the not yet that we don't really know what a world looks like that is completely revolving around the presence of God and that we hope for and look forward to as we read about in the book of Revelation, a world, a place that is completely illuminated by the light of God Himself. We know that you still want to use us to light the darkness. We know that your light is still shining, that you are still with us, even though it may not feel like it at the moment. You are with us right now, and even though we may be surrounded by darkness and it feels like we cannot shine the light because it's just too dark, you have sent your Spirit to illuminate this light of truth through us and in us. Father, I pray as we think about this truth, as we reflect on this truth and remember all that was done so that we could experience God with us in the here and now, that you would stir deeply in us, stir in our souls, stir in our minds, stir in our hearts. The promise has been, the promise is being, and the promise will be fulfilled. And God, I just pray that you would use us to shine a light that as we walk into this darkness knowing that God is with us, as we walk into the dark places of this earth knowing that that God himself, the spirit of truth, is there to teach us and to guide us into that truth, that, that you are going with us, you're going before us, that you will shine the light through us if we are faithful to you. And Father, I pray, let us be a church that can answer the question, what have we done with Emmanuel that says we have done everything we possibly can. That we've done what we can to illuminate and that we have trusted God to do much, much more. And we believe in faith, knowing that the God whose love is deep and high and wide and long, the God who came down from heaven and walked on this earth and ascended to heaven and sent his spirit that that God wants to use us to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. That even though we may be sitting in one of the darkest places on the North American content where fewer people believe in Christ here than in most places, that even though the darkness surrounds us and it seems to prevail, the darkness does not prevail when the light shines and that you can use us through your spirit to shine that light. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see that, to see the part, the role that each of us has to play in fulfilling that mission and vision that you've given to us in your word. And I pray for those we will come in contact with in the week ahead, those who don't know you, those who are living in the darkness, who are bound by corruption and destruction. Father, I pray that you would start to, by the power of your spirit, 
to open their minds to your truth and that you would use us to shine and speak that truth into their lives and that they would see and hear your truth, that they would see God is with us and God can be with them if they believe. We ask in faith, believing, though, that you want us to use or to use us to accomplish this mission, and we just ask that we get to be a part of it, that we get to see it and experience it, you using us to build your kingdom here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.